From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast. Third Coast is a nonprofit arts organization in Chicago dedicated to great audio stories, heart, soul, and ears. We gather the best stories from around the world all year long and share them in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, at live listening events, and honestly, every other way we can think of. We also host the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition to honor the very best audio documentaries of the year. This year, we received nearly 500 entries from 22 countries. Then we asked some of our most distinguished colleagues, highly accomplished producers themselves, to gather for the near impossible job of judging all this wonderful work. This special broadcast is a showcase of beautiful stories, featuring the winners of this year's competition and behind-the-scenes interviews with the makers. On this hour of Best of the Best, we're listening to three winning pieces from the 2019 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. We begin with the 2019 Best Documentary Bronze Award winner. It started with traveling for an abortion. You're not alone. This airport holds the shadows of the tens of thousands of women who've traveled before you. In a beautifully flowing narrative, the stories of four unrelated women in the UK and Ireland connect in unexpected ways. Strangers to begin with, their lives are altered when they discover the quiet power and hidden dangers of speaking out about abortion. They can't keep doing this to us. Hashtag repeal the eighth. Our judges said of the story, the subject matter is intimate and so is the sound world. The characters are distinct but connected, and so are their narratives, expertly woven together with clear, beautiful scenes that build upon each other. This is a dynamic, purposeful exploration of a subject that gives us the best of what audio can offer. Here is a sense of quietness. You kind of lose all sense of time um, I didn't sleep, didn't sleep because I was afraid I'd oversleep and wouldn't make the flight. There was a queue for security and I just had this really strong sense of standing in that line and, and looking at other women thinking, are you, is it you, are you travelling too? All the clinics required you to stay overnight for the abortion pill. And I couldn't do that, which meant I I knew I was facing into a surgical abortion to be back and forth in one day. Um, And I just felt angry, so angry, so angry all the time and wanting to get it over with and wanting to just be home and out the other side. And that anger, I think, um, that's what drove me all the way through. There is a sense of um, quietness about the day. In 
in the waiting room first I heard one Irish accent and then you move to a second waiting room and there were a number of us with the wheelie cases and then you hear people talking on the phone or you hear them asking a nurse a question and you're aware that you know you're one of six in that clinic on that day and that was um that was shocking to me and it shouldn't have been because all the statistics would have backed it up but to be actually there on that day on a random day with five other women was just it was devastating At one point, the nurse went through asking when our flight times were so that they could line us up according to surgery to give us the maximum amount of recovery time. One of the women said, oh, I can't believe I booked the 10 past six flight. What was I thinking? I wasn't expecting to be delayed. And she got to, she got to go first. She got to go first. It sounds ridiculous. We weren't queuing for a funfair ride, but she was taken in first for surgery and... Um, the nurse was going through everything that we could and couldn't do after a general anaesthetic and one of the things that she came up with was you can't drive because you've had a general anaesthetic. We were all driving back to various parts of the country. I mean, I was lucky I was going to Dublin from the airport but there was, were other women who were going to Limerick, going to Kilkenny. There was one girl who was very young and very quiet and just did kept herself to herself and then when that other woman made the comment about her flight time. I just said something to the effect of, I can't believe this is happening to us. I can't, this isn't this ridiculous, you know, that we're having to think about this. And I'll never forget, I was sitting right next to her and she had blonde hair kind of in her face. I said something like, we have to do something about this and we go home, we have to, this can't go on. She looked up and her hair kind of fell away from her face and she looked at me in horror. I mean, in horror, as if I was mad and said, are you kidding me? I will never speak about this to anyone as long as I live. That was a series of excerpts from A Sense of Quietness, winner of the 2019 Best Documentary Bronze Award. It was produced by Eleanor McDowell for Lights Out, a Falling Tree production for BBC Radio 4. To hear the full piece and listen to more creative, beautiful work from Eleanor McDowell, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Here's Eleanor speaking on stage at our award ceremony in Chicago. So um, I wanted to tell a collective story about a series of body blows sustained by a group of people across generations and over time and the quiet acts of resistance that accompany them. Quiet acts of resistance that can build and build into a furious and powerful scream. The women in this documentary lost jobs, faced intimidation in their workplace, suffered at the hands of the state, faced death threats and rape threats, largely not for exercising their bodily autonomy, but just for having the temerity to talk about it. So I want to thank these women. Um, the radio producer, Siobhan McHugh, the founder of Dublin's Well Woman Clinic, Anne Connolly, the journalist, Brianna Parkins, and the anonymous fourth woman. I want to end by borrowing the words that she printed out on stickers and planted all over the airport where she had had to take her journey from in solidarity with women so that they didn't feel that they were on their own. Be well, get angry. They can't keep doing this to us. 
And I would also like to say fuck yes to the legalization of abortion in Northern Ireland, which happened the other week. You can't keep doing this to us. Abortion was officially legalized in the Republic of Ireland on January 1st, 2019, and in Northern Ireland on October 22nd. Let's move on to the winner of the 2019 Best Documentary Honorable Mention Award. Hello, Bajaini Sangitla. Meet Aji, or Grandma. She's in her 90s, hard of hearing, proficient in English, but more comfortable in Marathi, the language of Maharashtra, India. Now meet Mitu. She's in her 30s, okay at Marathi, and as of recently, single. After Aji innocently asks if her granddaughter Mitu is bringing her quote-unquote friend home for the holidays, Mitu struggles to translate her heartache. This short story is bilingual, but as you'll hear, it works perfectly well without translation. Hi, Mitu. Hi, Sangeetamashi. Mom was saying that Aji is home. She just came home a little while ago. How is she doing? She's good, a little tired, but we're going to have lunch soon. Oh, I can I can call back later. You want me to do that? No, no, no. She's here. Just till a kami I quit, so Zara Motani bolte Jashi, okay? Here she is. Hello. Hi, Aji. Hi, Vita. Where is she? No, you're not here. You're not here. How are you feeling? How was the hospital? 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 Maybe. I can't wait to see you. No, um, we, we broke up. We broke up. No, <laughs> we broke up. Kasa manaite apan sodla? Kasa Apan um ami ata apan nahi bahir zatat? Apan pune nahi zatat? Tula sodi zale? To maja sati nahi ahe? I don't know. I'm the relationship. Tutla. We broke up. No, we broke up. I don't know this word, broke up. What is broke up? I don't know this word, we broke up. It just didn't seem like a good fit. 
तो अजून छान मुलगा आहे आणि मी पण छान मुलगी आहे पण थिंक इट वॉज अ गुड फिट बिट्वीन अस नाही समजला एकाकी म्हणजे काय एकाकी म्हणजे ऑल अलोन then you will be all alone like me <laughs> why not mala kabhi samjho na kos ka kasa kasa sathi aga mi pan ekti pan ekti asna ha kai apla dosh nahi hai nahi ga ajibat nahi maka mak yeah chal tariye majha kade apan dogi ekaki ekatra ho That was Row Cub, produced by Nina Patak. The additional voices were acted by Nalini Mahendale and Uma Patak. The engineer was Jake Gorski. Row Cub is the winner of the 2019 Best Documentary Honorable Mention Award. To listen to this story with subtitles, go to radioatlas.org. Our judges said this piece is a poem, efficient, evocative, textural, and expansive. It bursts out of its short runtime and simple form. It careens across cultures and ages, and it speaks as much with colors, pauses, and tone as it does with the meaning of the words in either language. Row Cub is a scripted piece that carefully crafts truth from fiction. Our judges also said, through its emotional recreation of a conversation between a young woman and her grandma, Row Cub pushes the boundaries of what a documentary piece can be. We invited Nina to talk to us about Row Cub, and she told us that this scripted story is based on a very real phone call between her and her grandmother. She decided to cast herself as Mitu and her real grandma as her audio grandma. This happy arrangement worked out really well, as you can hear since Aji is a great actress, but she's also a tough critic. My grandma didn't like the ending. <laughs> uh, really? Yeah, she actually had this moment where she was like, "I don't know what you're doing, but I don't like the end." And I was like, "Oh, how would you want it to end?" and she got like really quiet we were sitting at my parents dining table in St. Louis at their house and um she like leans in and she's like there should be a plane crash <laughs> and i was like what and she was like yeah there should be a plane crash and the only one that survives is a small child but then after 
doing the appropriate paperwork, and only after doing the appropriate paperwork so it's not stealing, the woman adopts the child. (laughs) I don't know if that was some kind of, like, you know, subtle commentary of, like, what direction she would like my life to go in, but... I I was kind of like, oh, you know, wow, that's that's like a different place than I, you know, was thinking about where this should go. But we can record that. <laughs> Fast forward, we're doing some pickups for for the piece the next day, and she's like, yeah, you know, you know, my idea yesterday. Um, yeah, I think that was a little much. <laughs> <laughs> that is hysterical. It was really, I, oh. but honestly, though, it just made me want to like work more on her projects because we really did enjoy the process of making something together and figuring out how to translate an idea into, into real life. I think she really liked being a part of that process. This story is scripted, and one of the beauties of this piece is that it's, uh, you know, it's a very small story, but when you listen to it, it really kind of illuminates a lot of bigger things like, you know, first and second generation immigrants, age, culture, and kind of bridging all those gaps. Did you think about all that when you started with this little kernel? I think I thought about it after. I, I worry sometimes about starting too much with meaning. I feel like when you start thinking a lot about meaning, sometimes like whatever you end up making ends up really heavy handed. But in my experience, at least when I've started with the story, when I've started with like the moment that made me feel something, I can just trust that whatever it is that I'm feeling is real. And then figuring out how to tell a story that is true to that feeling. Your subconscious is kind of working for you. Yeah. Yeah. That like those feelings are coming from somewhere. Right. And and if you just produce what you want to produce, it's part of you, so it's it's just going to come out. Yeah. I think it's a hard thing to trust yourself in that way. Um, but I don't know. I think that's a part of the exercise. <laughs> have you had other response to the piece other than this award? I mean, how have people generally responded to it when they've heard it? There was a screening of it. And it was really wonderful because I hadn't seen it played before with subtitles. And um, I'm not totally sure because the room was dark, but I think I heard a lot of sniffles and (laughs) a lot of sobbing and just people gathering themselves. And I was really, like, touched that people laughed so much because I think humor is really important to me, too. And if people can process something difficult by laughing at certain parts of it, then that's good sometimes. Um, There was one moment that I thought was interesting that I thought would maybe resonate more with certain second-generation immigrants. I'm not sure. But there is this point in the piece that the granddaughter says, I'm still a good girl and he's still a good boy. And it's like such a weird thing to say. (laughs) And it's something that I would never say in English if I, you know, because I have language skills to express whatever I'm trying to say. But in the absence of those words that feel more natural and appropriate it there's just like this weird kind of clunky thing that comes out i i'm like in my 30s and i i don't describe myself as a good girl ever (laughs) (laughs) but in in the context of this conversation i guess weird stuff comes out um as my grandma got older she started to lose her hearing some and it just became like another tool in communicating with her to be able to go between both languages, which I think is common for immigrant families. Like you're just kind of in and out of 
different languages in the same sentence. And like if there are certain words that you don't know, like you just kind of fill in the gaps with the words in whatever language that you do know. And I don't know, it kind of makes you a little more patient. And I think that that's generally a good thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with your family. Nina Patuk, winner of the 2019 Best Documentary Honorable Mention Award for her story, Row Cub. Here's a short excerpt of Nina's acceptance speech. I was thinking a little bit about all the everyday ways that when we do this work, it's really easy to sometimes feel like we're cogs and it's easy to get complacent and to do things a certain way because that's the way that it's always been done. But I think part of the reason that I got into this work in the first place is because it helps me sit with like really complicated questions and um, pursue these little and big truths. It helps me not be complacent. So I'm so, so, so grateful for that. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition, made possible with generous support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation. Here, all of this year's winners, along with a treasure trove of other great stories from around the world, anytime, at thirdcoastfestival.org and on our podcast, ReSound. The 2019 Best Documentary Silver Award winner is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to some of the winners of our annual audio documentary competition. For exactly 38 minutes on January 13, 2018, the state of Hawaii was thrown into a state of panic. The 2019 Best Documentary Silver Award-winning piece called This Is Not a Drill explores what it was like for residents on that unforgettable morning as they tried to wrestle with impending doom, death, and destruction. The park ranger tells us, you know, first we're going to go see a film. And it's a short film. Um, and they, they took us into this little, like, sunken movie theater. Honolulu, first pictures of the attack on the Hawaiian Island delivered while Japanese envoys talked of peace in Washington. Japanese bombers overhead. And it's, you know, black and white newsreels, and I feel my phone buzz in my pocket, and, um, you know, I, I see a, a couple other people in the theater pull their phones out and check it and start looking around. So I pull my phone out thinking, you know, may, what is this? I, I don't know, maybe it's... Maybe it's some cool technology they have, you know, trying to immerse you in in the feeling of, you know, of what happened at Pearl Harbor. The U.S. Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. Hello, police. How can I help you? Um, yes, I'd like to know if there's any news report coming out about this emergency alert. Hello, please. How can I help you? I, I need to know if the ballistic missile threat is real. 
I was going down to the beach at around seven in the morning to paddle my uh, my OC one, my one man canoe. Walked down to the water, um, took a picture, actually a video of the water because um, it was one of the most beautiful days I'd ever seen out on the water. The water was like pink and light blue. And then one of my teammates said, I just got this weird notification on my phone about a missile. I was just in bed and then I heard my mom go like, what, 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 what in the other room? Dad comes in. I, I don't know how you were exactly. I don't think you believed it. I don't, I don't think it really- I'm glad you think that because that was the impression I was trying to give you. Mm -hmm. And there is, there is uh, my favorite shirt hanging there. So I put that on. It's like a rainbow shirt. I love it. Uh, do you have it? I do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And whose shirt is that? It's, it's my dad's. <laughs> I steal a lot of his clothes. But yeah. So it is 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 um, just kind of like okay. I might as well be comfortable if I'm about to die. That was gonna be my last day of work. I got paid to take people out, people who were on vacation, who were looking to have a good time. That's the boat we were. And I remember as we were getting out on the boat and just kind of going about our chores, I just stopped and I was taking it all in, knowing it was going to be my last time out there. We untied our boat and we started heading to pick up our guests. As we're motoring, the crew doesn't have much to do. I remember simultaneously we all got this message. I just dropped my daughter off at the airport, and I was heading back to get uh, pick up breakfast for the meeting for everybody. Um, I went to this uh, drive-in called Zippy's um, on Nimitz Highway, uh, and I walked in, and all the girls behind the counter were kind of um, mumbling to each other, and they were looking kind of concerned. I didn't know what it was, and, and at first I thought somebody was saying bomb threat, bomb threat. We had gotten up, we'd made our breakfast, we were gonna go look for shells on the beach and just look forward to a really nice day. And as we were on our way to the beach, my cell phone went off with this warning. The US Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. We just looked at each other, my boyfriend and I, and we decided, well, there's no place to hide. And we went ahead and went on to the beach. And within a few minutes, he just started throwing up and just throwing up. And he thought getting in the water might help. So he got in the water, splashed the ocean on you, you know, to cool you off. He just kept getting sicker and sicker. And he, he says, we, we need to go somewhere. I need to, to get help. And so I tried 911 and there was no way to get through 911. It was busy, busy, busy. 911, police fire ambulance. Neither one. I want to know about this alert that came over, and I called okay. six times 911, and no one answered at all. No yeah. one 911 answered. If you are indoors, stay indoors. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. We are nearing the 14 minute mark, I think. We're running the water in the tub. 
We have medical supplies, we have battery. So, you know, we're all sitting in this really tiny, narrow bathroom, holding each other's hands and stuff like that. Um, and just, you know, uh, crying, really. That was the big moment. And it's not the awareness of death that comes from a loved one passing away. It's the awareness of death that comes from facing your own death as a very real possibility. It was kind of empty feeling mm, for me. Really strange. It was, it was, it was like, uh, like suddenly there was nothing there anymore, I guess. You know, I, I didn't really understand the gravity of the situation until Dad started freaking out, I think. And I do work for the Department of Defense in uh, countermeasure development antidotes for biological weapons. Uh, yes, I would say I'm probably more aware than the typical Hawaii resident of what the nuclear threats were. You know, there are people who are killed instantly, vaporized instantly. And then there are people who are horribly burned by the heat of the explosion. And then there are people who will die horribly of radiation exposure in the next days and weeks. And um, the horror of dealing with that, even if we survived, was coming up. If you are outdoors, seek immediate shelter in a building. We will announce when the threat has ended. This is not a drill. The moment was just terrifying. All of it was under the, the stopwatch of time. And really the kind of thing that set me off was all these SUVs blazing down the highway behind me with their lights on and they're going somewhere and the, the first decision was actually believing that this alert was real. And Lord knows it, it said, this is not a drill. Decision number two was, who do I go to and can I save anybody? Um, I definitely felt that I had to go somewhere. And then I had the fact that my wife, my two younger children and my oldest child were in three different directions to go to. So I had to figure out who I would go to. I need to save my children. I hopped in my canoe. I started to paddle away from the crowd. Na o makua mai kalahi ki Mai uh, I began a chant that I was taught as a child called Naomakua. That asked all these these ancestors and gods and spirits to come and join me on this journey and, and ask them to grant me knowledge and understanding and strength and to protect me. Uh, and this is something I do every time I get into the water on my canoe, but it definitely took on a, a stronger meaning that morning. I remember looking at my captain and he kind of looked up at all of us and he's like, is this a joke? Like, is this for real? <laughs> he's just like this and he turned the boat right around. We go back to our mooring we tie up maybe 100 feet offshore we're all trying to gather information we still have the the coast guard hailing frequency on but radio silence nothing was coming from from that end and then i texted my mom i just said 
I love you. I didn't tell her why. The lack of information was deafening. That's kind of feeding the panic, right? I, I don't know. The, the thing that really pulled on, on me was I had to run away from one of my daughters. I had to run in the opposite direction. I really felt like if I went towards the airport where I thought the, the missile would be aimed at our biggest military base being Pearl Harbor, right? If I went to try to get my oldest daughter, I'd be dead, she'd be dead. There'd be no hope for anybody. And then I figured all oh, my two younger daughters were off in the other direction. Like I was going to swoop in and, you know, cover my children and it was going to be okay. Uh, I think my biggest concern was that my oldest daughter was kind of forfeit at this point. Like there was nothing I could do to get to the airport. But I basically texted my oldest daughter, you know, I'm heading home to your sister's. I love you, you know, and I, I just took off in the other direction. Take immediate action measures. Repeat, this is not a drill. We jumped out of bed at the same time. Like, I remember our feet hit the floor at the same time. And the screen of my phone is taken over by this alert that says something like, incoming ballistic missile Seek shelter immediately. This, this is, is not, not a drill. Take immediate action measures. Repeat. The U.S. Pacific... And Katie immediately went into full-on Batman mode. Zero skepticism. She said, Oh no. We have 15 minutes at most. She then grabbed exactly what we needed, said, Come on, we need to get to the house and wake up the parents. And we just took off running. Remain indoors well away from windows. If you are driving, pull safely to the side of the road and seek shelter in a building or lay on the floor. This is not a drill. So I open and I look at it and say, oh no, no way. You know, this, this is not a drill. It, it is real you know, and take cover. And I said, hmm, where am I going to go? There's no place I can go to. And some of them I heard, they went to the tunnel. And I think they all drive up there and stand inside the tunnel. That was a big mistake to me because they don't know how powerful this bomb is. So powerful. I would prefer to die. Instant, you know, instant. Take me up there because I know more people, more friends up there than here. And I said, okay, let's remember when it happened to me in Hiroshima, atomic bomb. I was only 12 years old that happened. And it's 8.15 in the morning, I, taught, I was going to school, and uh, I catch train. Well, after I got on the train, about hmm, maybe about five minutes, such a bright light hit us. Big mushroom cloud, and we don't know what's going on. What, what's that? 
So everybody gets panicked. So the doors open, so we all jump off. Then uh, after we jump off, my girlfriend says, Oh, it's sore. Look at my arm is sore. And I look at it, it's all burned. Her skin just peeling off. We saw that a lot of people coming out from city. And look like they all burned. Uh, you cannot tell it's men or women. Skin's all peeling off her face, arms. Had half the clothes is all burned. And they all come in this way. I thought, oh, gee, I'm in hell or what? It, it was terrible because we don't know what's going on. And no more house. My mother never come back. From next day, we all have to go out to the city, try to find mom. We walk all day looking for her. Day after day, you know, we just walking, trying to find her. But we never did find her. U.S. Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. We saw these warnings come over on television. And when I looked at them, I thought, this is insane. This is ridiculous. There is no place to take cover. I was just truly pissed off at the United States because I'm thinking, why the hell should we ever be a target for somebody else? It made me really angry because the only reason that that is true is because of Pearl Harbor. From Pearl Harbor, a sinister plume of heavy smoke rises skyward. And I don't, I don't know if people are just, they're, they're just used to being reserved and like following the rules or if, if people were just, you know, caught up in the film or whatever it was. Hawaii's bright Sunday becomes a black Sunday. No one, no one got up. No one, no one did anything. Um, you know, we just kept sitting there watching the film. And when the lights came on, um, a park ranger came in. And we thought, you know, this is, this doesn't seem out of the ordinary. I mean, the alert is weird, but, and park ranger comes in and big booming voice. And he says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, there is, there's, there's been this alert. Um, we're going to need everybody just to stay put in here. Uh, we're going to bring other people that are outside in here and just please stay inside. This little auditorium that was meant to hold maybe, you know, 70, 80 people probably has 400 in it now. We're kind of packed in there really well. Braver people, I guess, are, are starting to yell out, you know, demanding information like what's going on. Everybody's just completely lost in a disarray. And there's a detachment of Marines that are there. And they are just, they're just beside themselves. You know, and these are men and women in uniform. So they're not helping the regular people that are in there. You know, people are generally, I mean, genuinely starting to freak out at this point. This is the reality we live in as Hawaiians living in Hawaii, that we are constantly under threat. But I've always felt really safe in the ocean. And I remember being out there and 
and just looking back on the mountains and you can just see the entire Ko'olau mountain range. And I remember looking at those mountains and thinking like, okay, a missile could be coming at this moment. Um, and I felt at peace. Uh, I don't believe I'm supposed to outlive these islands. As a Hawaiian, we understand this, I think, in our bodies. If these mountains were to be destroyed by a nuclear attack, then I would want to be destroyed with it. I was kind of just pushing my little uh, Honda Fit as fast as I could get it to go between stoplights and still strangely stopping for stoplights. Uh, some little voice in my head was saying, you're never going to make it home kind of this terror driving, I'm not gonna make it home, where are my kids, I'm not gonna make it to my kids. And I just hammer the pedal and just take off again uh, till I get to the next light. I definitely felt powerless. It was definitely a, a, a futile drive. It was a futile moment of time that I was just trying to do anything I could possibly do. Things were moving in slow motion while I was driving. Um, the cars going behind me with their sirens and lights on. It felt like I just saw it in the review mirror in slow motion. Everything just seemed to be very, like nobody else was moving. It, it felt like the world was frozen around me. So time was, was, was slippery that morning. I had to make a choice that people don't have to make in life, like not too many people have to mentally make a choice between their children. Remain indoors well away from windows. We will announce when the threat has ended. This is not a drill. So she corralled us all in, um, in the most protected room in the house. Um, it was a very small room. We had to bring in an extra chair and we sat with all of our knees kind of pushed together. We were all there. We had water. We had food. We had coffee. We had coffee. And then we sat and, you know, we kind of stared at each other for a few minutes and kind of went around. And I don't remember who said it first. It might have been me, but I was just like, you know, I'm really glad. Like, this sucks. This is awful. But I'm really glad we're all here for it together. And so we kind of went around the room and told each other we loved each other. And it was very sweet. And then we got online to see what was happening. But you're skipping over. Oh. The bit where you turn to me and you say, you know, if this does hit, I'm just really sad we had never gotten married. I don't know why that is what my brain chose as so important. I'm kind of pissed that I don't get to die as your wife. Like, you know, at the very least, we've been engaged for five years. Like, you know, that would have been nice. Like, that was the only regret I had. If, if this is a false alert, we should definitely get on that. <laughs> that is exactly what you said. I remember that now. I remember you saying, yeah, we should get on that. <laughs> It is a very windy road from Sandy Beach to the Hawaii Kai Clinic. And as soon as he got in there, he collapsed. They worked on him to get his heart going. They told me that they didn't know if they could revive him. They were yelling and screaming. The diagnosis was um, 
heart attack on, brought on by anxiety. They call it the Widowmaker. And he was basically dead, they told me, for 11 minutes. False alarm. There is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii. 911, please, fire ambulance. Is the missile coming? Okay, ma'am, ignore the message you got on your phone. It was sent in error. Everything is fine. It's a false alarm. Oh, thank God. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Please, may I help you? Did you just get uh, an alert of an in it was, a, it was a drill. The wrong message went out. It was supposed to say this is a drill. You said at the bottom this is not a drill. Yeah, it was, the message was supposed to say this is a drill. But the wrong header went out. That's a really bad mistake to make. Yeah, I know, sir. Okay, bye. All right, thank you. Repeat, there is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii. False alarm. So yeah, I saw the official all clear on my phone. It was like, all right, good. I am glad that's over. Now I'm going to be, you know, very angry and very sad at the same time and not really understand why. We keep planning on you know, s setting the date, planning mm -hmm. the party, mm -hmm. putting together the guest list. And one of the things we do is we either refer to each other as, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as spouses, or we call each other partner. Because when you say fiancé, the first question everyone says is, oh, when's the wedding date? And it's like, I don't know. We waited a few days and we were like, should we actually set a date? Yeah, you know, I think we should. Okay, yeah. uh, how long? I don't know. I think these things are supposed to be like eight months to 18 months. I don't know if I want to wait a year and a half. And then it was like, okay, so where should it be? This is a conversation we have had before. Like every three months for yeah. the last, going to be six years in October. Right. Oh my God, six years. Right, yeah. Sorry. Um <laughs> So, so we it went it went from the clarity of yes we must do this. How has it taken so long? To oh right, this this is why it's taken so long. I just pulled over, um, and that's when all the emotions of the the you know, t the, the decisions kind of came to me. Um, the fact that I had written off my oldest daughter, the fact that I believed I couldn't save my two younger children, the fact that I had to kind of ignore my wife, and I kind of just broke down. I actually just cried. I, I pulled over on the side of the road and I just kind of welled up and cried. The kind of cry like you don't want anybody to see. After I, I, I'd sat and I kind of cried my eyes out, here's the text I, I actually sent to my wife. I said, I hope you were oblivious to this morning's terror. I do love you. We canceled all, all our plans for the day. Yeah, we, we just stayed together. That yeah. We did go get molotadas. Um, they're a, a Portuguese donut covered with sugar. It's really good. You know, it's, it's a, a, a real treat here. And so we go out and get that, and we're just like, you know, it's, it's so weird being out in the world after it happened. I remember seeing people just, like, laughing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just trying to take in as much as I could. All of a sudden, you know, we've done that drive a million times. I was just like looking at everything. You know, the, there are trees in the center. You know, I was just trying to remember those trees. 
I, I think the thing about the donut run that, that I recall is I see the light again. The way the light in Hawaii, the angle of the light during the day and the way it hits the leaves and the way it shines over the mountains and the way it reflects off the water is different from anywhere else I've ever been. And I saw it again that afternoon. It's a beautiful day. You get to see like all the tension that we were holding in just kind of lets itself go. And we're all just kind of high-fiving and screaming like, yeah, we're not going to die today. Like, it's pretty cool. And then then we all realize like, hey, we don't have to go to work either. Like, we got the whole day off now. Like, everything in life seems so sweet and like everything had this gold hue to it. We see maybe 200 yards away a mom humpback and her calf you know just slowly cruise out to where they are and we jump in the water with our masks and our fins and we just follow these whales out into the channel and uh, so well, we, we follow the whales, which is much harder to do as a human. It was humbling. It was humbling to be in the water next to something so magnificent. We got as close as 10 feet away from them, you know, diving down and being on the same level as the whales. So not, not looking down at them from the surface, but actually being eye to eye with them underwater. If you haven't ever heard a whale before, it's it's kind of a high-pitched squeak is the best word that comes to mind right now. It's not unpleasant at all. It's not harsh on the ears. But you're underwater, so the sound is just carrying and reverberating. So you're immersed in it. It's The, the sound is all around you. And going through you as well and we're just beside ourselves we we can't even process what's going on from going to think that the world is ending to sharing the coolest experience that any of us had ever had both of those experiences stripped everything away and reveal the rawness of life i think i could honestly do with remembering that day a little more often. It puts life into a, a clearer perspective. Life ain't that bad, you know? It could get a lot worse real quick. I do get emotional about this. This, this place, Hawaii, these islands, um, there really is actually a spirit here. And anyone who has ever come here and decided, I don't want to live anywhere else, they, they know what this place is about. What might happen to all of these beautiful places, these hills, these pools, the ocean, all of this turned into some kind of radioactive heap really pissed me off. I've never seen a bartender busier at, you know, 10 a.m. on a Sunday. I mean, everybody, everybody that was there was they everybody ordered you know four of everything you know the the extra large you know margarita or mai tai you know put an extra shot of rum and i mean everybody was just a buzz everybody was just happy as can be i mean 
I think the waiters probably made the most in tips they've ever made that day. I mean, every everybody was really just giddy as can be. Our waitress had no idea. Had no idea any of it happened. She had rolled out of bed maybe an hour before and come, come into work. And she's like, yeah, I mean, it's such a crazy day. And we're like, you you don't know what happened? You, oh, no, you know, I lost my phone a couple days ago, so I just, I just came into work. I haven't really caught up on anything. What's going on? It is hurt. I mean, you cry. You cannot cry enough. Really, I don't want nobody to experience what I experience. So I said, okay, I don't want to go through all that again. So I'm going back to bed. I would prefer to die. So I went to sleep. This Is Not a Drill was produced by Jasmine Aguilera with Anna Sussman for Snap Judgment from WNYC. It was co-produced by John Fasile, Erica Lance, Nancy Lopez, and Eliza Smith. Original score by Renzo Gorio, who also worked on the sound design along with Leon Morimoto and Pat Masidi Miller. The story was edited by Anna Sussman and Mark Ristich with executive producer Glenn Washington. Nearly the whole Snap Judgment team came on stage at the 2019 awards ceremony. Upon accepting the award on behalf of the team, Jasmine had this to say. As we were producing and interviewing and talking to people, you know, the typical stuff that gets in your way got in the way. Like, what you need to make a good story. You need plot and you need characters. And so we heard that. Those were the conventional tips. But we didn't listen to that. Because this was such a rich experience, such a human experience. There was something there, and there was an ocean of nuance to swim in. So we decided to break convention and do what we podcasters do best, which is make new stuff that breaks everything in new forms, in new voices, in new languages. That's what we're here for. We're here to break stuff because you don't know when you're going to get an alarm on your phone that tells you, hey, you have 15 more minutes to live. Jasmine Aguilera, winner of the 2019 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Best Documentary Silver Award for This Is Not a Drill. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast, sharing the best documentaries of the year. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. Third Coast executive director is Shirley Alfaro. The artistic director is Maya Goldberg-Safer, and the program director is Emily Kennedy. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible by support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent nonprofit arts organization originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. You can hear winning pieces from all 19 years of our competition, as well as hundreds of outstanding audio stories from around the world at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. 
Thanks for listening to Best of the Best.